Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to Saudi Radio's Business Matters with me, Carl Fitzpatrick. My final guest this morning, Johnny Thompson, has been studying magic from an early age and has managed to carve out an infamous career as one of America's top magicians. Johnny, you were best known for your work with Penn and Teller, but how did you first get into magic? Well, as a boy, I, uh, I actually started out wanting to be a card cheater at eight years old. I saw a movie about a Mississippi River boat gambler and I said, that's what I want to do. I saw the Derringer hat and the frock coat and the brocade vest. It looked so romantic. I bought a book from a used bookstore for 35 cents called The Expert at the Card Table. I spent the next four years trying to learn as much as I could. It's very difficult, very prosaically written. After four years, I came to the rude awakening. There weren't a lot of places for a 12-year-old card cheat to work. So I looked in the back of the book, and it showed you how to apply those moves to magic. So that's how I got into magic. And is it true to say, Johnny, that most of the tricks that have been fooling us have been around for hundreds of years? Oh, yes. For principles, uh, you know, there's a, a joke in the magic world. They, they claim we're the second oldest profession. <laughs> and I, I tend to believe that, you know. Uh, at one time, people used to think of us as uh, alchemists and possessors of knowledge that others didn't have. We were high priests. Uh, everything was going well until someone caught one of us switching the gold brick for a real one around <laughs> 1650. Then we went out into the streets and became street performers. It took us a lot of years to get into the theater. And what are the core principles of magic for you? Well, the core principles for me are the magic that I do and or I invent for others uh, has to really be as magical as possible. Look and have the feeling of it being real magic. I strive for that. Now, your fellow magicians refer to you as a GP, a general practitioner, because you're not known for just one specific type of magic, but rather you have excelled at stage magic, close-up magic, illusion, and manipulation. Why was it so important for you to have the variety in your act? Well, I didn't know any better. I just thought you you had to, as a magician, do everything. And I I think I've done just about everything. I've I've been a trade show magician, a bar magician, restaurant worker, an illusion designer and builder. I've done stage work, comedy. I was a comedy magician for a great part of my life with my wife, doing a two-person comedy act. Uh, uh, I've done stage magic on my own as Johnny Thompson, away from the great Thompsonian, my stage character. Uh, I think I've done everything except sing and dance and do magic. Now, looking at the specifics of planning a show, what level of preparation is undertaken that perhaps the audience may not appreciate when they witness a live show? Well, I've been working for Penn and Teller for about 21 years. Three of us work together. Sometimes we may bring in a fourth magician uh, as a team and we just design the magic. But what people don't realize and which is to my advantage with working with Penn and Teller, they uh, don't put a time limit on anything. We we work sometimes several years on a trick before we put it into the show. They want to make sure we've examined every avenue and found the best way to do it. 
My goodness, we just put a, a, an elephant banish into the show. And it was six and a half years we worked on it. There's a wonderful routine called the animated ball. It's a little red ball about the size of a beach ball that Teller brings on stage and has someone in the audience examine it. And I also examine a hoop. And the ball acts kind of like an animal. It runs around the stage and jumps up into his arms and jumps through hoops. And it's pretty amazing. And that was two and a half years we spent on it. So the work to put a show together... Even though their show has been running now, I think about it, they've been together for 40 years. It's something that we work very hard on, and it's not something that comes together in just a couple of months or a few weeks of rehearsal. Now, there's usually a process behind everything in this world. What's the process that an illusionist would follow? Well, a lot of illusions are built on very old premises that go back hundreds of years. Illusions, uh, when magic left the streets and went into the theaters, they had to do bigger, bigger things than they were doing. Con- they were doing conjuring principles out on the streets, sleight of hand. Whereas when they got into the theaters, they needed b- bigger items, and that's how the the illusion came into to being. And most of the illusion principles go back those hundreds of years. Those things don't change a great deal. We just modernize them or use modern techniques to, uh, to bring them about now. But the concepts behind them are still the same. And Johnny, with any life experience, things don't always go to plan. Have you had any memorable instances of things going wrong for you? Well, I have a feeling about that. I think a professional magician really uh, uh, shows his uh, tenure by uh, getting out of trouble because it's easy to do the act when everything's going well. But uh, you, you have to have enough experience as a magician to be able to think on your feet and find a way to to uh, to overcome whatever problem you had without the audience knowing it. It's uh, basically on the same principle that people don't want to see jugglers drop a ball or a club. They don't want to see a magician miss a trick. And so I've always felt that uh, that's a sign of a really fine magician is they're able to get out of trouble and bring a trick to its conclusion without anyone knowing something went wrong. And uh, that only comes from years of experience and uh, understanding your craft. And who do you rate as the greatest magician of our time? Modern times, I would say, uh, well, of course, Siegfried and Roy did the most spectacular magic show anyone's ever seen. They opened the door for spectaculars here in Vegas. That's how Cirque du Soleil was able to enter in was because of Siegfried and Roy. Of course... Penn and Teller right now are one of the great shows. And, of course, David Copperfield. I think David will be the Houdini of our era. Is he one for using the core principles that go back hundreds of years? Or has he brought about a level of innovation to the industry? Well, he's done some innovations. You can't break those kind of... uh, uh, new ideas of vanishing not just something simple on stage but something like the Statue of Liberty or as I said walking through the Great Wall of China vanishing a Learjet those do take new principles 
saw Johnny. How do you feel about David Copperfield being forced to reveal the secret behind one of his illusions recently when an individual who was involved in the trick made a claim against him? Well, that's the unfortunate thing. It's, it appears as if the gentleman who made the complaint was trying to get money and David was forced to explain it to the court and of course and um, I guess there were reporters and it went out to the press uh, it's a shame that he had to do that I mean it, I think the court should have uh, at least cleared the courtroom just uh, just the jury and, and judge heard the uh, explanation because I know the trick we're, we're talking about and there's no way somebody could have been injured in that particular trick and so uh, I think it's a shame that the court didn't use a little more discretion. Now, I once heard you describe magic as being pretty simplistic, but that technology is not a magician's friend. Does technology well, pose a threat to revealing the simplicity? And if so, how can you counteract this particular threat? Well, the technology doesn't necessarily reveal the simplicity. Magic is a simple thing. The simpler you can make the effect work, the, the better it is, the, the, the more magical it looks. Technology, on the other hand, the, the day they can levitate someone, well, then levitation's gone from magic forever, isn't it? Uh, so a- a- anything that can be done tech technologically that looks magical you know it, it was a great science fiction writer who said that uh, technology compare technology to magic and that the one looks exactly the same but I think on the flip side of that, it can also be an aid to illusionists because I know I attended David Copperfield's show a couple of months ago and he seems to be using an awful lot of technology in that show today. Probably a lot of technology that we don't see in the market yet. A lot of it looks like technology. And some is, of course, the alien that he produces is, is through technology and and the uh, pioneer work that the Disney Studios did and... He has a spaceship that flies over the audience these days, and he produces a, a skeleton-type T-Rex uh, on stage from nowhere, and it comes to life, even though it's a skeleton. And some of, a lot of this uses modern technology, but you don't see it. Now, Johnny, at 82 years of age, you're still very much involved in the magic scene. And as you say, you do lots of work with Penn and Teller. And, of course, Chris Angel as well under Vegas shows. I work for Chris Angel, David Copperfield, Siegfried and Roy. Lance Burton was kind of a protege, and I worked with him from the time he was 20 years old. And worked for David Blaine, and of course, Penn and Teller. So I worked for most of the, the names in the industry, and I'm very proud of that. Now, Chris Angel has a very different style to both Copperfield and Penn and Teller. How would you describe his style, and what's he like to work with? Well, first of all, the man who changed magic on television was David Blaine. You know, uh, up until then, the only time you saw an audience shot was uh, if they were applauding or laughing. But... Um, he saw something that we every magician sees, but we it was invisible to us, which is the awe on people's faces when you actually fool them with a magic effect. And so he changed the, the look of magic on television by getting the reactions of the people to the magic he was performing. And Chris kind of 
followed in that mode. And when it came to fruition, uh, I was involved with a magic team that uh, helped uh, bring them to stardom. And uh, we decided that one of the things we changed was instead of doing close-up magic, we had Chris doing things you would normally see on stage out on the street as well as smaller smaller magical things but he he uh, that, that was his claim to fame uh, levitating someone out in the middle of a street where there are no curtains or no uh, trappings of a theater and uh, i think that's what his his strength was and his magic is uh, well uh, more of what we see today. Now, I think audiences across the world will always be interested in illusion. But what does the future of magic look like from your perspective? Well, the future of magic right now is not uh, as exciting for me as uh, magic has been because the young people are going to the internet and inventing magic that is only what I would refer to as maybe flash magic, you know, a, a trick that a, occurs within 90 seconds. I think there's a reason for it. Uh, we have all over the world versions of America's Got Talent. There's Britain's Got Talent. There's India's Got Talent. And it's uh, the equivalent of what was the variety show, but in a contest form. The magic is... They only give them 90 seconds or at the very most to do whatever they do, whether they're a singer, a dancer, or a magician. And so the magic that's being built today is, uh, and the young people feel the way they are going to become famous is by the amount of hits they get on their magic being seen on television, on the Internet, of course. And uh, I'm... Uh, a lot of it lacks the plot, storylines, because they're just flash tricks, tricks that can be done quickly and with, without much thought. So I'm, I'm a little, uh, I'm not so crazy about some of the things I'm seeing coming out these days. And how much of the illusions are down to misdirection? Well, there's, misdirection's a great part of magic, and uh, there's various forms of it. There's time misdirection. In other words, putting enough time between A and B that they forget about what, they, what happened at A. You know, that's called time misdirection. There's vocal misdirection. The, just the way you look and talk to an audience at a moment when you're doing something draws their attention to your face and to what you're saying. And there's, there's a wonderful uh, Spanish magician named Arturo Escaño, who um, he called uh, a form of the misdirection of hiding the moves in transit actions, hi hiding what you're doing uh, under the moves of a normal action where you might just be picking something up off the table. Actually, you might be doing a secret move at the same time. Tell me what goes on inside in the head of a magician. Well, you may look at something and and see an object. I, I have a couple of friends. One's Michael Amar, a very fine magician, and another's Daryl Martinez. And they basically lecture to magicians. And they will walk around a, 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 what we used to call a dime store here or a novelty store, department store, looking for ideas 
that they can put into their lectures. So they're looking at objects that you and I see as just what they are, and they see a magic that can be used in a magic purpose. And that's the kind of thinking that goes on. And what are the top three techniques and principles applied by magicians? Well, I think the number one thing you have to learn is to be a good sleight-of-hand performer. That's most important. That's where all the background in magic uh, comes from, uh, conjuring. And uh, that's probably the most important thing is uh, to learn sleight-of-hand first uh, because almost all the basic principles lie in that type of magic. And um, then there's also, uh, there are some magicians who think the moves and uh, secrets are, are the, the tricks, whereas you have to be a performer as well in order to be able to sell the magic. And that's the second thing, learning to be a performer. You know, it, we're on the same equivalent as an actor, I mean, we're we're lying while we're talking to you and trying to make you believe what we're saying we're doing, and uh, so acting is uh, also a very important part of uh, being a magician, and acting's part of being a performer, and uh, and then I would say moving to stage magic is the next big jump. That's uh, a whole different thing because you're projecting to a large audience. Whereas close-up, you may only be working for, you know, a handful of people or 30 or 40 people. Um, very rarely you work for more than that. You might work for 100 people uh, if the conditions are correct. So um, I think those are the three most important things is uh, sleight of hand, uh, performing skills, and uh, then the ability to... Uh, to protect them from a stage. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Southeast.